Hello, members of the committee, and thank you for holding this hearing on an issue that I believe impacts the entire LGBTQ community or lesbian, gay, bisexual. At the end of last year, the Financial Services Committee in the U.S. House of Representatives held a hearing with a rather long title. It was called There's No Pride and Prejudice, Eliminating Barriers to Full Economic Inclusion for the LGBTQ plus community. Now, the fact that this hearing was taking place at all, let alone in November outside of Pride Month, when most places feel obligated to cover these issues, it really impressed me, as did one of the people they invited to speak, and that was Tanya Azapanza Johnson Walker. I am a proud Black transgender woman. I am a combat engineers, Army veteran, and my path has not been an easy one. Despite being a combat engineer's veteran, I was forced to rely on food pantries and kitchens throughout my adult life. Tanya's work and activism has been pivotal in the fight for LGBTQ rights here in New York State. And at that hearing, she opened up about the abuse and neglect she's received from doctors and nurses, from healthcare professionals throughout her entire life. From 1990 through 2010, it was virtually impossible to find doctors or other medical providers to assist with my transition. I've been laughed at, misgendered, deadnamed, and in times declared mentally ill. One of my doctors called me schizophrenic and prescribed me pills for a condition I didn't have. This issue, accessing appropriate healthcare, is not new by any means, and it's something that I think a lot about when we talk about all the advancements that LGBTQ plus people have made. Because when it comes to healthcare settings, especially for the trans community, we're not only stuck, we're going backwards. We're seeing this right now in state legislatures across the U.S. So Tanya Azapanza Johnson-Walker is here today to talk about it all. We also talk about surviving lung cancer, survival sex work, and her time in the military. While she was enlisted, she was told that the life expectancy for combat engineers was 10 seconds. From The Advocate Magazine, in partnership with GLAAD, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and this is LGBTQ and A. I want to go back to when you first joined the military. You were 17 years old. What made you want to enlist at that age? You know, I was working in a restaurant called Hardy's serving hamburgers, and I didn't want to serve hamburgers the rest of my life for $2.72 an hour. So I had to break out of there. This was the early 80s, I believe, right? This was 81? Yeah, 81. And so that was Reagan, like years before Don't Ask, Don't Tell. How visible or not was queerness in the military? It was there. However, most gays and lesbians were in marriages of convenience, living in a two-bedroom apartment off base so that they could live with their partners or engage with their partners because you weren't allowed to live off base unless you were married. Plus, you could hide being lesbian or gay in an apartment off base better than you could in a barracks on base. So basically, everyone was in the closet. Captains, COs, everybody was in the closet. But they had, I guess they had to find each other to have these marriages of convenience. Was it open secrets or was it very, very hidden? It was hidden because you'd be put out. You know, they would discharge you from the military and nobody wanted a, a dishonorable discharge. They would give you a dishonorable discharge if they caught you 
having sex with one, you know, with another gay person or kissing anything. They had gay people who were hunting down other gay people to out them and get them discharged. And so if queerness was so hidden, how were you finding each other then? Basically, when you got to the gay club, they had gay clubs everywhere you went. Oh, so you would see other people in the military there. Yeah, we used to all go to Frankfurt and we'd see, you know, they'd be acting all butch and everything. And then the next thing I know, when they get in the club, oh, girl, oh, they would just carry on. <laughs> they would start flaming in the club. <laughs> and so you were stationed in Germany at this point. You were a combat engineer. What exactly does that mean? In the combat engineers, we worked with a lot of explosives. Our job was to delay the enemy, you know, build pontoon bridges, blow up bridges to keep the enemy from crossing with their tanks and their troops. And we had to build bridges to get our troops and tanks across. You know, we had to blow things up and we had to bury the dead in mass graves. It was life expectancy and the combat engineers is 10 seconds in the job I was in. Is that an exaggeration or is that something you were literally told? No, that's what we were told, 10 seconds. We're front line. We delayed the enemy from getting to the rest of the troops. We have to knock out the bridges. You know, after the, after the bridges are knocked out by aircraft, we have to build pontoon bridges to get our troops across, our tanks and everything across. We build tank ditches so their tanks will fall into ditches. You know, you see four and blow up these ditches. We were doing stuff like that. We delay the enemy. So every day, did you wonder if you were going to die? No, I didn't really think about dying. <laughs> I didn't think about dying. I only ask because you said the life expectancy was 10 seconds. Yeah. I was just thinking about living my life, getting to the gay club, you know, being around, hanging out, dancing, having fun at the bar. <laughs> well, how aware were you of your transness at that point? I couldn't transition in the military. I couldn't, I wasn't, I didn't have access to anything. In D.C., when I was stationed in Fort Belvoir, Virginia, I would go to the clubs where the drag queens were and all that stuff, because we were considered drag queens back then. We weren't considered transgender, or we were considered transsexuals, and we considered ourselves that in our own mind. Was that one of your explicit reasons of why you joined the military, that this would make you a proper man? That's what I thought. My dad said it would, I would change. And so when did you realize that that was not going to happen? When I got in the gay club in Frankfurt, Germany, and Washington, D.C., and, and New York City, I ran away from it, yeah, for many, many years, yeah. Because, you know, your family teaches you to hate yourself, you know, the, you know, it's, you know, in those days. And still today, they do that. And so you eventually did leave the military after almost four years, and you moved to New York City. Is that when you first started to find a trans community? No, I didn't start right away. I didn't start dressing. I just came out the military. I was out of my mind. I didn't know what to do, what's going on. I, you know, I wasn't a civilian for many years, you know, for a few years. So I really started to medically transition in 1989. Everybody was dying from AIDS. They were dropping like flies. And I didn't know what was going on. And so that part of your life, you were saying 1986 to 1989, what happened that made you realize like, oh, I can't run from this anymore? When I got in a car accident, I was working as a porter at a hospital, St. Vincent's Hospital in Staten Island. I was out with two girls from St. Vincent's and we were going out to lunch. And I don't know what the driver was doing, what she was doing, but she hit a parked Jeep and we were going like 50 miles an hour. I mean, you know, cracked my skull. I still have a dent in my skull to this day. My body was ejected out of the car. 
I was woke up on the ground next to a tree. That's what made me, I said, look, I better live my life because I might not make it to live my life. And I said, I'm going to do this. So I started, you know, I started my transition more and more and more after that car accident. And so what was the like trans community like in New York City at that time? Was it easy to find other girls? It was easy when you went to the city. A lot of them were homeless. A lot of the girls were homeless. You know, they refused to stay in the men's shelter because in the men's shelter, you couldn't wear your clothes. They said, this is a men's shelter. You have to wear men's underwears, men's this, men's that, and you cannot come in here with those women's clothes. So I was homeless at one point, and we lived in abandoned buildings. You know, people were dying from AIDS. Our girlfriends were dying from AIDS. We had to take care of them in abandoned buildings because they were afraid to, they, they, you know, the hospitals wouldn't, they weren't a safe place for LGBTQ folks and not only LGBTQ folks, but, but for trans folks. It wasn't a safe place. People that were sworn to not do harm are working in the medical field, in the hospitals working today, doing harm to our people. And a lot of us are falling through the cracks. Right. And so when we talk about this mistreatment in the hospitals and medical settings, I want people to know that we're talking about abuse and harassment beyond just not using your correct pronouns. I'm not saying that pronouns aren't important, of course, but do you mind giving an example so people can understand the weight and the gravity of what we're talking about? I was really mistreated by the staff who were misgendering me, harassing me, even by the social workers. When they would be in conversation about me in the room, they would be the wrong gender pronouns, and I had to keep correcting them. Even some of my visitors had to correct them, the nurses, and they still did it. The night nurses wouldn't come in the room. I had to crawl on the floor to clean the room myself. They wouldn't clean the room. And basically, they would just throw stuff in the room, and they refused to give me my HIV meds and treated me really, you know, like I was an animal. And this hospital right here in New York, I had lung, you know, lung cancer in 2013. But in 2017, when I had lung cancer again, they removed my top lobe. I had surgery again, but there was a gay guy. He used to sneak into my room at night to check up on me because he knew they weren't checking on me. And he would sneak in my room at night and he'd be like, oh, your oxygen levels are low. I got to call somebody right now because, you know, my breathing was, oxygen levels were real low. They would not come in the room. The night staff would not come in the room at night. Wow, that's um, heartbreaking. And so for that reason and many others, you have made this an enormous focus of your activism. You know, fighting and working to make sure that nobody has to go through this same thing that you did. As one example for everybody, in 2020, you were one of the plaintiffs in a case brought by the human rights campaign against the Trump administration. This was when they rolled back protections in the Affordable Care Act, protections which specifically addressed discrimination against trans people in healthcare settings. Now, after that, a federal judge ultimately did block the rollback of protections. Judge Block. That was his name, Judge Block. Oh, funny. <laughs> so Judge Block blocked it. But I wonder, do you feel like you had any choice in the matter of becoming an activist? That you were almost like required to become an activist in order to just access basic needs like healthcare? Yes, I did. You know, the youth that are coming up who choose to medically transition, not every trans person chooses to medically transition. You know, I'm looking at these younger folks coming along 
who are being discriminated against in healthcare already, and older folks, or I should say mature folks, who are being discriminated against in healthcare, I thought that this was a moment for change, to recognize that, you know, we are being abused in healthcare settings. And also, like, our bodies only get less dependable with age. You know, you cancer twice, as you said. Are these issues, like, you worry about as you get older? Yes, I do. Cancer is very scary. It's very sobering. You feel like every second you're going to die. But you try to be happy and you try to live, you know, you try to be as productive as you can while you're above the ground. You know, you just know you're going to die. The doctor, he said, you have a one in five chance of survival. So it was really scary for me. Wow. I wanted to do art, you know, just draw or keep myself busy you know, and try not to think about it as I'm disappearing. It's like a cancer, like a force outside your body just sucking the life out of you. That's what I felt like. This thing was just sucking the life out of me, and it was just outside of my body just pulling all my energy into it. Everything that you just described about cancer and, you know, this sucking, like, the life force out of you, did you also feel like that when you were diagnosed with HIV? I felt like, you know, everybody was dying anyway. Everybody, most of my friends were HIV positive already. They, were, they had AIDS or HIV positive, And everybody was just dropping dead like flies. You know, we had to take care of people with Carposi sarcoma in abandoned buildings because they couldn't go to the hospital for care. People weren't out with their families. They didn't know their family member was transgender or gay. So some of the folks we had to take care of in abandoned buildings right here in New York City tried to bring them food or do the best care we could while they were dying. Everybody felt like they were dying. We were just trying to live it up, do some drugs, you know, to try to self-medicate the pain of losing your friends. You know, some of the families took took their bodies to other states or whatever. We didn't have the money to go. It was a really sad, hard time for us, you know, and a lot of us, some of us were homeless. A lot of us were homeless. We had nothing but the streets. And you've talked a lot about doing survival sex work. Was HIV a big topic of discussion amongst sex workers? No. You had to make your money to eat, to survive, to pay rent if you were living in a hotel, trying to live in a hotel or whatever, whatever you could afford, you know. So it wasn't a a real topic. I mean, we talked about it. There wasn't a lot of prevention dollars back then. And there's really not a lot of prevention now. And and doing sex work, were you part of a community of sex workers or did you feel like you were on your own? We felt like we were a community, you know, that we, you know, we kind of looked out for each other when we could. So if one of the girls was out there, you know, she'd be on using drugs like crack or something or some other drug. We'd help each other out. You know, she'd be out there starving. We'd take her out to eat, give her money for her pockets because she couldn't do the sex work. So we helped each other out the best we could. I mean, did you have like a mentor figure saying like, hey, this is what you need to do to keep yourself safe? Yeah, I did have one, but there was no way to keep yourself safe. You got into cars with strangers. Mostly we did street sex work. You got into cars with strangers. You didn't know whether, you know, but when you do it, you're like in a desperate mode. You got to have money to buy more clothes, more makeup, blankets to keep warm in abandoned buildings. Or if you get a hotel room for a couple of nights, that was good. You know, you could pay for that. We had to risk our lives. You couldn't be afraid to die. You had to get in those cars and you had to do what those men wanted. And a lot of them, some of them just wanted you to talk. 
You know, well, sex work is talking as well. Sex work was, wasn't all about sex. And the dates that were, weren't about sex paid the most money. One guy, ex, was talking to me about divorcing his wife. Should he divorce his wife? You know, another guy asked me, should he commit suicide? I had to talk people out of suicide. Sex workers do a lot of work that people don't realize. We're like social workers as well. It was crazy. <laughs> so... I mean, I think that like in the public's mind, there's like two opposing views. And one, they look down on sex workers, especially folks doing this for survival. And then the other one, I think they simultaneously like glamorize it and think this is just like ladies like raking in the money. I mean, like you were not living luxuriously at this point. Were, were you making enough money to like get by or not even that? To get by because, you know, I also worked in show world. Uh, I stripped in a booth. And, you know, after I got away from street work, so I stripped in a booth for a few, I think for about a year maybe. And, you know, the curtain would go up and you'd have this bathing suit on and heels and all this makeup and blah, blah, blah. And the guys would come in. Oh, God, some of them were so gorgeous. But you really can't look at them. You know, you have to perform for them, you know, in front of a window when the curtain went up, when they put the money in. You know, after they put the money in, because if they didn't put money in, the curtain wouldn't go up so they couldn't see you. And this was like a really much safer way to engage in sex work since there's like literally a barrier. Yes, it was. It was very safe. As You know, show where it was pretty safe. Yeah, it was pretty safe. I think that you have an interesting perspective since you also have run this support group at Sage for many years, the nonprofit. And that's for trans women specifically, right? It's older trans women, yes. Older trans women. So so for that like older age group, what are like the biggest concerns and issues that you hear repeated most often? Well, the majority of the trans women in the group, they transitioned late in life. After they retired, after retirement, some of them retired, and a lot of them are, are, are afraid to die alone. They're afraid that somebody may detransition them and they won't die with dignity, or they may end up in, a, in an institution or a, a nursing home if they become incapacitated. They fear that. When you say that they're afraid to die alone, do you have that fear? Not really. I don't have that fear of dying alone because I've experienced so much horror <laughs> that I don't have that fear, but I know how families are. Families, if they're paying for the, your funeral or if they're paying for you when you're incapacitated, they will detransition you, misgender you, because it happened to a friend of mine in New Jersey. She had a stroke. She went to live with her family. The first thing they did was cut her hair and gave her a goatee, and they're dressing her in men's clothes. She lost bits of her speech and some of her memory. They're really treating her bad. I think that, I mean, there's so many things to think about as you get older, like having to potentially, like, I mean, it sounds horrific, honestly. Yeah, it is horrific. And also staff, homophobic staff in nursing homes as well. Everybody in the nursing homes or in care are not LGBTQ, and that includes the staff. So even if you're gay or transgender in that setting, you could be harassed or, or, or called homophobic epithets by other, other patients or, or clients and by staff. Do you have plans or desires for when you are like no longer able to take care of yourself? Yes, of course. Yes. I, you know, I, I really, you know, like if I had become incapacitated or something, like I wouldn't want my, pa my family touching me because I know they would detransition me because they're kind of religious. 
And they would, I know they would detransition me and they would misgender me and all that. I might sign some papers to where they can't get near my body. And if they're paying for your funeral, they're gonna, they're gonna be the ones to say what you're gonna look like. I've seen where they've drawn mustaches and beards on the girls and tried to make them look like men and put them in three-piece suits. You know, tried to bury them as gay men. Even after death, you can't, you don't have dignity. Well, tell me this, like on the positive side, is there anything you're looking forward to as you age? Well, I'm aging, but I still want my own agency. I still want that Equality Act. I fought to get gay and trans panic defense passed. You know, going to Albany. I get up at four o'clock and three o'clock in the morning and get the van and then go meet people in a central point in the city so we could go to Albany and tell our stories in front of the staff of elected officials in the, in the Senate of New York State. I would drive everyone up there. And we got also conversion therapy passed. We fought to get that passed in New York State. You know, we are out of time, but I appreciate you, one, doing this work, and then also just for being here today and the great conversation. So thank you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and that was Tanya as a Panza Johnson Walker. Sage, the LGBTQ plus elders advocacy group, is the one who connected us. So big thank you to them for that. And then next week, we're continuing our elders project with a person who, well, you're definitely going to recognize him by the sound of his voice. Here's a clip. If you can fuck with gender, I'm going to do it. You know, if there's a way to fuck with gender, Harvey's going to find a way to do it. If you don't ask questions, then what the fuck are you doing? I mean, that's the problem with happy people. Happy people don't ask questions. That, of course, is Harvey Fire's scene with what is perhaps our dirtiest interview to date. So that comes out next week. And until then, I have a small request. And that is, surprise, it's the same thing we ask every single week. If you enjoy this interview, this podcast, please help us by spreading the word to every single person that you've ever met or also just one single person. You can post on social media, text your friends, send an email. Doing any or all those things, I promise, is the biggest way that you can help us continue to make this series. Thank you so much to everyone who's been doing that. We are brought to you by The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD. I'm Jeffrey Masters. I will see you next week with Harvey Firestein. 